It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the last of three episodes based on our interview with National Book Award finalist Jen Shapland. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. We always ask our interviewees if they would like to read a passage from McCullers. And so I was wondering if you had something in mind you might like to read for us. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the letters in your email. I mean, would it be okay for me to read some of her letters to Mary Mercer? Yeah, that would be fine. Sure. Why not? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll read a couple of those that I've pulled up. June 30th, 1958. Dear Dr. Mercer, last night I dreamed I was holding you in my arms, embracing you, kissing you, but your soul seemed distant somehow and I could not communicate my love. I tried to make you realize my love, but you were spiritually remote. It was such torment. I knew I had to go away. Then I saw a headline in the newspaper, Eudora Welty drowned in Hook River. In reality, I know Eudora and like her, although because of Catherine Ann Porter, we have never been close friends. The name Hook comes from Hook Mountain, which Horton had named and pointed out to Max last evening when we went for a short drive. We had driven to the Hook and looked at the river in reality. In the dream, I identified myself with Eudora so much that I even realized it in my dream consciousness and substituted my name instead of hers. Of Herschel Brickle, who always regretted that Eudora and I were not closer friends and was always trying to bring us together, Herschel committed suicide about two years ago. In real life, Rita had spoken of Eudora last time she was here, and just before I went out to dinner, she had called to say how much she loved me, how much she loved my work, and that I was the best writer in the world and the best sister. Rita really said that out of the blue on the telephone. I think there are other connotations in the dream that I'll bring up when I see you. July 14th, 1958. Dear Dr. Mercer, last night I had a whole kaleidoscope of dreams, but in a waking state, they winnowed down to only two. I dreamed you were holding in your arms several premature wiggling creatures. Watching, I felt both love and sorrow for you and I offered with a shudder to take them away from you and hold them in my arms. You nodded no and would not let go of them. I, awake, I thought of Stephen Dedalus, who leaves his home and goes out into the world to forge the uncreated conscience of his race. I think the dream means you are holding on to me, no matter how disgusting or difficult or painful. In the other dream, there were the hoarse and intermittent sounds of an ocean liner's foghorn. An acquaintance whom I can't identify suggested I go for a voyage, and the old wanderlust was on me again. I thought with great longing of Edith Sitwell and her rooms at the Sekamate Club in London, and her 20 guest lunch parties where the poets and writers gather two or three times a week. In the dream, I remembered a remark Edith often said to me, Carson, this party is getting out of my control. Help me reorganize it. Then I moved on in the dream to Elizabeth and Bowen Court. I saw the sheep nibbling the desme and Elizabeth's garden. There was a great yearning to see my friends. Then suddenly I wondered if I had enough money, so in the dream I called Barry, Audrey's secretary, to tell me of my finances. In reality, it is Floria who does that. 
Then the dream voyage denigrated into a nightmare. I realized I had no passport, no ticket, etc. I was still haunted by the compulsion of this particular voyage, but the dream reality was hopeless and the foghorns wailed my despair. Your Joseph Jr. July 31st, 1958. Dear Dr. Mercer, I woke up at dawn this morning thinking of you, loving you. Since I didn't want to wake you, I waited until around eight to call to say one last bon voyage. But alas, I had waited too late and there was no answer. I wanted to cry, but when I looked at your beautiful ring, I was comforted. Thank you for letting me have this part of you while you're gone, my darling. Here's the Joyce poem I dreamed. I hear an army, I hear an army charging upon the land and the thunder of horses plunging, foaming about their knees, arrogant and black armor behind them stand, disdaining the reins with fluttering whips, the charioteers. They cry into the night their battle name. I moan in my sleep when I hear a roar, their whirling laughter. They cleave the gloom of dreams, a blinding flame, clanging, clanging upon my heart as upon an anvil. They come shaking in triumph, their long green hair. They come out of the sea and run shouting by the shore. My heart, have you no wisdom thus to despair? My love, my love, my love, why have you left me all alone? In the dream, the images were all there, but I remembered verbally only the last two lines. It's very Celtic and lovely, isn't it? Yesterday was a gruesome experience. I exaggerate, but the lack of taste in television really appalls me. The conversation was ill-prepared, shallow, and as I told you, vulgar in these respects. You have been in the airplane for about three hours. I prayed when you took off and have been thinking of you with trust and love all day. I will feel better tomorrow when I can think of you sleeping, resting in the sun, swimming, and free in your radiant gladness. In the meantime, know that to me, no word is tender enough to be your name. Carson McCullers. You know, you talk about in the book uh, some of the wars that went on between, well, between you and the estate, between um, Mary Mercer and the estate. Uh, one of the things I want to make clear to our listeners is that the Carson McCullers Center and the McCullers Estate are two completely separate things. We are, we are, not, we are not the same thing, and I think a lot of people um, confuse that issue. Mary's wars with the estate uh, ha had to do over uh, the, the, the possession of the transcripts, for one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I honestly just don't know what, uh, what, what, what is behind all that. I really don't. But it, one of the things that has occurred to me, and I just wanted to ask you, if you what you think about it is, do you think it's possible that, as the letters you just read from Carson to Mary suggest, she was in love with Mary, do you think it's possible that Mary was not in love with Carson. I would have thought that were possible had I not read some of the letters that Mary wrote back to Carson. But having read those, uh, I I feel a bit differently about it. Um, but I, you know, I think that it's also important to you know remember that 
none of us were in that relationship yeah. uh, that so much has been kind of concealed or, or made difficult to access. And so, you know, there's only so much we can know. What I can know is what I see on paper at this point. You know, what I can know is what I, I see in the the fact of Mary preserving Carson's house and, and all of her objects and leaving them as they were for many years. Like that's, those are the things that we can actually touch and hold uh, today and actually reflect on. Maybe there will be other things that are revealed in time, who knows. But looking at those materials and knowing what I know and, you know, coming at it, approaching it from the perspective that I approach it from, from my own life and my own relationships, I see a mutual relationship. I think it would be unusual for a love to be unreciprocated, but then for the two people to be kind of invited to other people's houses together, to travel together, to have mail addressed to them together. I think it would be unusual for for Mary to stick around if that were really the case. But I'm sure there are other, you know, there are other ways to spin it. There are other ways to understand, oh, you know, Mary's a doctor protecting her patient or something like that. You know, there are other ways that we could try to understand it. But I think and certainly anyone who reads the book will will know this, that I, I come down on the side of it being a love story. Here's another thing that about Carson McCullers that I've always felt in, in reading her work is that she is, you know, it's like her, her major theme is this strong connection between two people. Mm-hmm. There's the famous scene in uh, the, the famous passage in uh, Ballad of the Sad Cafe about lover beloved. And the idea that, you know, it, it can't be predicted. It can't be governed, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it, a man could fall in love with another man or a woman could fall in love with a man or fall in love with another woman. It, it just can't be predicted, can't be governed. Um, but also, it seems to me, that Carson McCullers was most interested in this sort of deep spiritual connection between two people. That was mm-hmm. more important to her than anything else. More important, it I feel, than a sexual relationship. And so I, here's another question is, is, do you think it's possible that the relationship, for instance, between Carson and Mary Mercer was a lover beloved relationship, but not a necessarily a sexual one. Sure. I mean, I sure that's possible. Uh, I think that letter I just read where she talked about uh, holding Mary in her arms, embracing her and kissing her would uh, suggest otherwise. But of course, she's only narrating a dream. You know, I, I think that the, this, it's like kind of a familiar dodge, right? It, it's kind of one of the things that I talk about uh, in the book, especially in, in women's relationships with other women that, for example, in the relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Lorena Hickox, biographers were kind of always at pains to say, you know, they loved each other, but it was just a very platonic kind of love, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a way in which I think, I don't know, some, maybe some people are more comfortable with, with that version. Certainly in Carson's, both of her, the big biographies, there's a tendency to see her as, as somehow asexual. Certainly some one could I actually know of someone who's working on a piece of fiction that considers Carson as as asexual, which I think is you know just one more mm-hmm. version of her to add into the mix. So sure, it could be argued none of us were in the room for you mm-hmm. know any any of these situations. Um, but I think I would also you know warn against that. I think that there's a way in which kind of choosing to avoid the terms of a sexual relationship in talking about, you know, her her relationships with women, that by avoiding that, it's important for us to ask ourselves, 
what we're trying to avoid and what we're trying to not say or, or trying to protect Carson from or what we're trying to preserve about her legacy by avoiding the specificity of that relationship. So I just think it's it's important to kind of reflect on that. That was my next uh, question is about the importance of it. I mean, if it weren't for the books that she wrote, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Carson McCullers. We wouldn't know Carson McCullers, right? So in that respect, uh, I guess uh, in terms of her literary reputation, is it important that we talk about the things that we're talking about right now, about her sexuality and so forth? And, and if so, how and why is it important? The answer I would usually give to this is that it's important in terms of representation. That all of those people I met on my book tour who loved Carson McCullers when they were teens, if they had known that Carson had relationships with women, if they had known that she was queer, uh, if that had been somehow part of the apparatus through which Carson McCullers' fiction was taught to them, they would have had not only a completely different relationship with the work, but it would have potentially been a an avenue for them to see and understand their own identity. If I had read The Member of the Wedding when I was a teenager, A, I would be probably like a, a very different person, you know, in my life because it would have had such an impact on me to see this depiction of adolescence and outsiderness. But then if that had been portrayed to me as the writing of a queer writer, I would have instantly been able to see like, oh, this is a woman who, you know, who lived this particular life, who had these very powerful relationships with women uh, and then became this writer. Like, you know, what does that mean for me? What does that what does that say about the possibilities that are open to me? So representation is usually where I would go to answer that question. But I was just talking with Carlos Dews and he had such a beautiful response to this. Of course he does, because he's also, you know, thought about this and talked about this for so long, which is that if you read Carson's fiction, one of her great subjects is love. Love comes up in each of her books. Uh, the love that we're, we've been talking about, you know, this, this longing to connect with other people and, and this idea of kind of what does uh, love between two people even mean, you know, and, and why is it such an important aspect of human life, right? That's one of her, her great literary subjects, her great contributions to literature are her reflections on love. So it seems pretty important that we understand what love meant to Carson McCullers. That's what Carlos said, and I just thought that was so insightful and so true that if we don't spend some time, you know, looking at her life to understand what love looked like in her life, what it meant to her, how it operated, then, you know, we're at a disadvantage. We're never going to truly have access to the love that she's trying to depict in those pages. So, yeah, I thought that was a really... I mean, you know. Leave it to Carlos. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Well, uh, you know, I, I am someone who I've always loved. In my, like, it's my guilty pleasure reading artist biographies mm. and autobiographies and memoir. I love it. I mean, I love history told through the single human life, right? Totally. Uh, that, I mean, that's, yeah. that's partly what I do. But I also appreciate the argument made uh, by some people that in the case of a writer, uh, you should just read the work and not let the life pollute your reading of the work. What I'm hearing from you is you disagree with that. You know? Yeah, I think I do. And it's funny, I mean, in college, I was 
a major, it was called literary studies. And we just had this huge reading list of books, starting with kind of the ancient Greeks and some ancient Chinese texts. And it went up through the modernists. And the whole idea was that we were supposed to read these books. The professor, uh, Stephen Donatio, used to say, read them as though you found the book in the nightstand of a hotel room, as though you have, have no knowledge going into it. That was sort of the idea. I still think there's a huge amount of value in reading works, reading fiction that way. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for just coming to something on your own terms. But if what we're talking about here is also, you know, not only reading someone's work, but also trying to really understand that work and interpret it, trying to understand it in a larger context, then we can't ignore a person's life, right? Because then we're just kind of putting ourselves at a disadvantage. I also, on the flip side of this, I've been thinking about this kind of in relation to Carson McCullers. There was an article that came out recently in The New Yorker about Flannery O'Connor and her journals that had surfaced in some of her letters. Sad to say, in her journals and her letters, she uses the N-word a lot. And she is, I mean, her views, it would be difficult to categorize them as anything but racist. And I read tons of Flannery O'Connor in school. And I remember her being taught as like, while her characters on the page might seem racist, her views are much more charitable. And, you know, she's Catholic and she's trying to kind of put them in this different moral universe so that you understand how how racism is a problem and how it's functioning in these in these. But when you read <laughs> these other things, it's a very different story. And I think, you know, the actions matter. So like we can also look at Carson's fiction. We can look at Heart of the Lonely Hunter. We can look at Clock Without Hands. We can say, wow, her her depictions of interracial relationships are, are really powerful and she has a deep empathy for understanding difference on the page. And then we can look at her life and we can see something like, you know, the Columbus Public Library asking for her papers and her saying, sure, I'll give you my papers if you desegregate the library, right? And then, you know, they don't get her papers. We can see her actions uh, reflecting some of the perspectives that come across in her fiction. That's valuable to me. I mean, I think that's that's important. So we can read in a vacuum, that's valuable, but then we can also see this larger picture. We can understand a person's work with a bit more context and nuance by understanding more about their lives. I mean, that's the whole importance to me of archives, of places like the Carson McCullers Center and the archives at Columbus. You mentioned now several of McCullough's work, and one of the things I like to ask interviewees is um, if you had to hold up one of Carson's work and say, I think this is the most important, the greatest, whatever, you're my favorite, what would it be? So those are two different things for me, I think. My favorite is The Member of the Wedding. It's the thing I return to the most, and it's the it's the book where I just it's a perfect novel to me. It's a coming of age story. It's something I feel like should be required reading for, for everyone. But I actually think the most important of her work, and this is like not a popular opinion, would be Clock Without Hands. Because I think, especially today, there's so much in that book that reflects the time that we're living in, that reflects, uh, you know, she's talking about the sort of resurgence in, in the public sphere of the KKK in the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, we're seeing that again today. She's talking about, she's talking through some of, and, and even giving voice to some of the perspectives that sort of 
allow racism to continue and allow white supremacy to continue to have power. She's she's writing about those things. She's writing about it with a great deal of humor and insight. And uh, I think that those things, I mean, and then of course she's also writing about homosexuality and homophobia. Um, and, and I think that those things are just super valuable to, to be able to revisit now in the context of uh, 2021, you know, having lived through the last few years uh, in the U.S. And, and the kind of political climate and the political upheavals that we've lived through, I think that works would be the, the most important thing for people to take a look at today. Is there any other thing that you think we ought to talk about or that you would like to mention with respect to Carson McCullers? You know, I don't think so. I, I did, you know, as I was getting ready for this, I was just remembering that you were the one who kind of guided me to the the Mary Mercer papers in Columbus. And so I guess I just want to say thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And, you know, that was such a formative part of my research. I think the McCullers Center and the archive are just so invaluable for anyone who wants to know more about Carson. It's so precious that not only the house in Columbus, but also the house in Nyack exist and presumably will be available to people. Yeah at another time. I think it's important to see uh, and to kind of to understand how how these writers lived. So I, I just I'm grateful to you for your work with the center. Thanks for agreeing to do this today. And I think it was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Jen Chaplin's reading of letters from Carson McCullers to Dr. Mary Mercer are in the Columbus State University archives. The music you heard during the reading was Orange Dawn by Ian Clark, performed live in Legacy Hall by Catherine Woody on November 17, 2019.